The following podcast is brought to you by the BICBP Radio Network. What's up, Creepers? Welcome back to a new episode of How Bizarre. This is Chris Chavez, one of your co-hosts, joined by my lovely wife and co-host of How Bizarre. Aaron Chavez. We're back. This is episode three. Right? Three. Yeah. If you, you, well, maybe two. No, it's episode three. Is it? Because the first one was just kind of filling in. It was a that's odd, right? Nah. Well, whatever. This is an episode. And it's a newer... I feel like it's episode three. What's wrong with me right now? But anyway, yes. New episode of How Bizarre. What's going on, folks? We're back. And we've got a couple of stories ready for you today. Um, It's the end of October. We're getting close to Halloween. And there's a crazy windstorm right now, so it's, it feels really spooky here. It's insane here today. The entire day since we woke up first thing in the morning, it's been nothing but overcast. And it's gotten darker and darker. We've had rain all day. And like you said, the craziest winds, gusts of 50 miles an hour. And we'll like, we have a, a storm door that we keep closed, but we'll open the, the main front door. But those winds, you could hear it like it's kind like, of, yeah. It's just like a scary movie. It's seeping in through the cracks and it literally, it literally howls. It's perfect. It was perfect for recording today. Yes, it was. Um, it is. Not that what we record is as creepy as history creeps or even weird as that, uh, that's odd. But how, at least mine today, isn't creepy or weird or anything like that. Mine is bizarre. Yeah, mine's just bizarre too. But still, oh. this fits. Okay, let me ask you something. Okay. Do you have a story today? Do I have a story today? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Do you have a, a news, <laughs> a, a, a current news story today? I do have a current news That's story today. Because <laughs> I don't. I tried okay. to look for something. And like, so how do you find bizarre stories? You know what I mean? Like, I can find creepier ones and, mm. and, I don't know, man. Mine are just random when I'm going through news things. I see something. I'm like, whoa, that's a weird one. And then I just save it or remember it. I always think to myself, mine has to fit a specific criteria for how bizarre. Because we haven't even figured out what we want to call it, did we? What? Now, Our current? Yeah, what whatever. was it called? I don't know. I don't think we came up with anything. Now currently bizarre? <laughs> <laughs> we'll just steal the two pieces of the other one? Yeah. Currently now bizarre? Instead of how bizarre, now bizarre. Now, well, we have now that's odd. Who cares? I just made it like, funny. <laughs> it was rhyming. It was perfect. All right. It's yours. We're doing now bizarre. Now bizarre. Now bizarre. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you have a story for today. Yes, I do. What is it? Okay. So there is an Indiana couple, Christine and Michael Barnett, and they were charged last month for allegedly leaving their teenage adopted daughter, Natalia, behind when they moved to Canada. Wait. <clears throat> yes. Indiana? They lived in Indiana. They moved, but they left their teenage daughter behind. How old is the girl? Uh, well, that's the bizarre part, and we'll get to that, but okay. allegedly like 15. Okay. And they were just like, you know what? We can't stand this bitch. We're out of here. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> the Barnetts apparently adopted the Ukrainian girl in 2010, oh. believing she was six years old with a form of dwarfism. Buyer's remorse. Wait. She's six. 
Well, they believed, they believed she was she six. She was six in 2010. What is she, like 30? With a form of dwarfism <laughs> called, I'm not going to say it because I'll screw up this word so okay. bad. The condition which affects the bones in one's spine, result in difficulty breathing, early onset arthritis, and weak joint mobility. The Barnetts filed a court order two years later after they adopted her to change the girl's age. A judge agreed, and they changed her birth date from 2003 to 1989. Holy shit. Correct. What does that put her at? In two- <laughs> I don't know. I can't do the math right now. In, two- Go on. in 2013, the Barnetts put Natalia in an apartment in Indiana, paid the rent, and said sayonara and moved to Canada. So this was in 2013 this happened. Okay, but let me just tell you something. In 2019, she's 30. Yes. Which means this was only six years ago, which puts her at 24. When she was adopted in 2010, that would have been nine years ago. Okay. And she would have still 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 been 21. She still was an adult. six years old. That's a huge difference, right? What the shit? Yes. How do you how do you mistake a six year old and a twenty year old twenty one year old even if it's well, dwarfism? The the mother Christine <clears throat> believes that it was an adult trying to scam. Oh my god! Her. This is ins- this is like that the the Looney Tunes cartoon. Which, do you remember when they that the little baby was actually the mobster? Yeah. Remember that shit? Yeah. <laughs> That's I was what gonna this say, is. Which foreshadowing this might also play into my main story? Oh, just look so at you! You, know. you like to play these little themes. Okay. All right. So Christine reported, that's the mom who adopted Christine Barnett, reported yeah. that soon after the adoption, she began to suspect that Natalia was not six years old. She was smoking cigars and <laughs> drinking brandy. She was like, fuck you, mom. <laughs> she was having her period, apparently. Oh, my God. And speaking of vocabulary that Christine considered adult. <laughs> she had a bone density test done, and it was determined she was around 14 at the time of adoption, according to Christine Wow. Christine alleges that Natalia had threatened to stab her and Michael while they slept. She poured bleach in her coffee and once even tried to push her into an electric fence. So they got her age changed and moved to Canada. Like, goodbye, bitch. We're done. That's insane. Yes. When did when did this happen? When did they move? They moved in 2013. Okay. But it was just last month when the police say differently. Oh, man. Okay. They cite other medical records of doctors who say Natalia was a child at adoption. Michael and Christine have since divorced. So it seems like, okay, according to the cops, what Michael is reporting, it seems like Michael might be throwing Christine under the bus. But through Michael's <sighs> lawyer, he says that's not true. Okay. But yeah. The this co- is the, awesome. The cops are saying that Michael now says that she that they both knew that the, the kid was still a child when they left. So no one, as of now, no one knows how old this girl is. This is where it is. They have a trial date set in January 2020. Nobody knows. <laughs> this girl could be 15. This is bizarre. Could be 30. This is definitely bizarre. Who the hell knows? Maybe we'll call it that. This is bizarre. Are you still... You don't like my now bizarre? No, now bizarre. Now that's bizarre. Yeah, the, now bizarre. No, just now bizarre. Just now bizarre. How bizarre, now bizarre. Okay. Come on. I got it. I got it. Right, no, but this is That's insane. good. No, yeah. Creepers are going <laughs> to agree. I agree. It. Uh, that's insane. Yeah. What? That's an insane You always story. think like you've heard everything right and then something out of nowhere comes in and just totally plays a story and and parts where you're like what yeah a ukrainian dwarf gets adopted <laughs> I don't know that you can just say dwarf why isn't that what she has just dwarfism, dwarfism yeah. well that's a dwarf okay okay gets adopted 
as a six-year-old. So who's passing her off as a six-year-old? The adoption agency? Well, that's the other thing. The adoption records are sealed, so no one can see. Did the adoption agency know that she was actually older, or did she scam mm, them, too? Like, Interesting. There's no... There's and can you imagine being those people with this little girl? That little girl's like, I'm going to kill you in your sleep. <laughs> like, what the fuck? You got to lock your doors when you go to bed at night? By the way, I'm not six. And can you imagine trying to sleep and hearing, like, her testing that doorknob? Like, trying to get in? sons. They so oh you have to worry God. about your kids too. How old your other sons? kids. I think they're older. I, well, who knows? Because we don't know how old she is. But when why they, are they all Ukrainian? The kids? Too? No, no, no. Oh. The other two are their biological sons. But when they moved to Canada in 2013, it was because one of their sons, who's like a genius, apparently, is studying at a school in Ontario. So I don't know if he was high school or college studying. That's crazy, dude. That's bizarre. <laughs> yep. I like that. Very bizarre. Very, very bizarre. You ready for our stories? Yeah. All right. All right. Mine's um so we talked about this before. Like we like to kind of get our stories and have time to sit down, write them out and how we're going to present them. <sighs> and then there's Chris. And then there's me. Sometimes <laughs> I have the best of intentions and then life gets in the way. And let's be honest, last week was not the greatest of weeks. You know that. Personally, at work, uh, it was it was quite an insane week. So when I when I come home, like the last thing I want to do is just flip my laptop open or just start working. You know what I mean? Staring at a screen. Should I start playing the violin? Oh God! See, at least when I do it with Johnny and and, and Carter, they feel bad for me. Uh, no, <laughs> they're just too nice to actually call you out on your crap. All right, I'm gonna delete you. No. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, but anyway, the way I'm going to present mine today is I'm actually getting mine off of smithsonianmag.com. It's an article written by Karen Abbott. I came across this because when I look up stuff, I just like put in, you know, search terms to try to find something strange or weird. Um, if I have not seen something already that that catches my attention. Uh, and the, And most of the times it's lists. You'll find like these little lists, you know what I mean? This one came up on a list, and so I had to d- dig deeper into it. And as I read the story, the other day when I was at home for a few hours, uh, yesterday when I was sitting around here for a few hours doing it, I literally lost myself reading into this whole story. And I thought myself, like, this is crazy. I never heard of this before. So the Olympics are a big deal. Been around since the ancient times. The right. Greeks, right? It was the Greek games. Um you know what year America had its first Olympics? I do not. 1904. 1904 was the first time America hosted the Olympics. We hosted it in the city of St. Louis. Um, it was a big deal, though, because we decided that we were going to kind of make it like a, a joint effort, a, a super party, because they did it at the same time that the city hosted the World's Fair. Oh, nice. So the World's Fair, as you know, it was huge back in those days. At the turn of the century, every year there was this thing called the World's Fair where, you know, the biggest innovations in science and technology and and all kinds of things, different pieces of entertainment and art. It was this big conglomeration of of a huge fair, right, at at whatever city was hosting it at the time. And in St. Louis, 1904... um, this was the time that they were going to host it. It was it was St. Louis's time, and we won the bid for the Olympics, and we said, let's do it then, right? Wow. Yes. So here you go. The 1904 Olympic Marathon, which took place during this, this, uh, these, this Olympics, uh, the headline for this is the 1904 Olympic Marathon may have been the strangest 
forever. Ooh. In 1904, St. Louis hosted the Olympic Games as part of the World's Fair and produced a spectacle that incorporated all the mischief of a midway. You know what the midway is? Mm-hmm. So all when, the like, games and stuff. Yeah, the games, the fair. Like when you go to a circus, like that kind of like when you first enter that whole row of games and carny so music. So they do and have to run the marathon super, through the midway? Super chaotic, right? No, listen, yeah. this is amazing. This story, it was like, I was like, what is going on here? America's first Olympics may have been its worst, or as at least its most bizarre. See what they did there? Oh. Held in 1904 in St. Louis, the games were tied to that year's World's Fair, which celebrated the centennial of Lu- the Louisiana Purchase. While advancing, as did all such turn-of-the-century expositions, the notion of American imperialism. That was the point. Like, Look at how great America right. is with all of our, our innovation. Although there were moments of surprising and genuine triumph, gymnast George Iser earned six medals, including three gold, despite his wooden leg. A dude had a wooden leg and was winning all these medals, Oh, right? my gosh. The games were largely overshadowed by the fair. This is crazy. Which offered its own roster of sporting events, including the controversial anthropology days in which a group of quote-unquote savages... Oh. Recruited from the uh, from the fair's international villages, competed in a variety of a variety of athletic feats. Among them, a greased pole climb, quote unquote, ethnic dancing, oh. and mudslinging for the amusement of Caucasian spectators. Ouch! Yeah, uh, Pierre de Coubertin, a French historian and founder of the International Olympic Committee, took disapproving note of the spectacle and made a pres- uh, prescient observation. He said, "As for that outrageous charade, it will of course lose its appeal when black men, red men, and yellow men learn to run, jump, and throw, and leave the white men behind them." Good lord! The Olympics signal event, the marathon was conceived to, so this for this one right like normally when they have the events they have the marathons they have these things but for this year for this big deal because the world's fair was going on at the same time uh the event was conceived to honor the classical heritage of the Greece uh, of Greece and underscore the connection between the ancient and the modern but from the start the 1904 marathon was less showstopper than sideshow Oh, a freakish spectacle that seemed more in keeping with the carnival atmosphere of the fair than the reverential mood of the games. Can you imagine? Like, you know how people take it nowadays. There's a lot of people that love the Olympic Games. Like, of they course, wait for yeah. it every time. And they, again, reverential. Like, the way this the, the, the uh, writer wrote this is true. People kind of, like, regard these as, as kind of sacrilegious. You know, or, or, I'm sorry, kind of religious, right? And to mess with it would be sacrilegious. Right, right. Wow. Uh, the outcome was so scandalous that the event was nearly abolished for good. Had you ever oh hear, heard of this? No. A few of the runners were recognized marathoners who had either won or placed in the Boston Marathon or who had placed in previous Olympic marathons. But the majority of the field was composed of middle distance runners and assorted oddities. Americans Sam Meller, A.L. Newton, John Lorden, Michael Spring, and Thomas Hicks, all experienced marathoners, were among the favorites. Another American, Fred Lors, did all his training at night because he had a day job as a bricklayer and earned his spot in the Olympics by placing in a special five-mile race sponsored by the Amateur Athletic Union. 
Among the leading oddities were 10 Greeks who had never run a marathon. Two men of the Suwana tribe of South Africa who were in St. Louis as part of the South African World's Fair exhibit and who arrived at the starting line barefoot. And a Cuban national and former mailman named Felix Carbajal who raised money to come to the States by demonstrating his running prowess through Cuba, once trekking the length of the island. Upon his arrival in New Orleans, he lost all his money on a dice game and had to walk and hitchhike to St. Louis. Oh, my gosh. At five feet tall, he presented a slight but striking figure at the starting line, attired in a white, long-sleeved shirt, long, dark pants, a barrette, and a pair of street shoes. One fellow Olympian took pity found a pair of scissors and cut Carbajal's trousers at the knees for him. You ready for this? This is insane. On August 30th at precisely 3.03, David R. Francis, president of the uh, Louisiana Purchase Exposition Company, fired the starting pistol and the men were off. So let me let me just say this real quick. Because they were wanted to make it as... as um, Kind of like a throwback to the old Greek days. They mm-hmm. made sure the path was very kind of like four or five inches layers of dirt and dust. That's what they were running on. Oh, my gosh. All right. Heat and humidity soared into the 90s. And the 24.85 mile course, which one fair official called the most difficult a human being has ever asked to run over, wound across roads inches deep in dust. There were seven hills varying from 100 to 300 feet high, some with brutally long ascents. In many places, cracked stone was strewn across the roadway, creating perilous footing, and the men had to constantly dodge cross-town traffic, delivery wagons, railroad trains, trolley cars, and people walking their dogs. There were only two places where athletes could secure fresh water, from a water tower at 6 miles and a roadside well at 12 miles. That's it. Oh, my gosh. Nowadays, you see these marathons and everybody's there along the way holding out cups and right. all these places. And I'm sure even the ones after this was, you know, you had all these different stations to get water. Not this one. There was only two. The reason? James Sullivan, the chief organizer of the games, wanted to minimize fluid intake to test the limits and effects of purposeful dehydration, a common area of research at the time. Cars carrying coaches and physicians motored alongside the runners, kicking the dust up and uh, launching coughing spells. Fred Lors led the 32 starters from the gun, but by the first mile, Thomas Hicks edged ahead. William Garcia of of California nearly became the first fatality of an Olympian marathon when he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging. The dust had coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. Oh, my gosh. Had he gone unaided an hour longer, he might have bled to death. John Lorden suffered a bout of vomiting and gave up. Len Tao, one of the South African participants, was chased a mile off course by wild dogs. Felix Carvajal trotted along in his cumbersome shoes and billowing shirt, making good time, even though he paused to chat with some spectators in broken (laughs) English. On one occasion, he stopped at a car, saw that its occupants were eating peaches, and asked for one. Being refused, he playfully snatched two and ate them as he ran. A bit further along the course, he stopped at an orchard and snacked at some apples, which turned out to be rotten. Oh, gosh. Suffering from stomach cramps, he lay down and (laughs) took a nap. (laughs) 
Sam Meller, now in the lead, also experienced severe cramping. At the nine-mile mark, cramps also plagued Lors, who decided to hitch a ride in one of the accompanying automobiles, waving at spectators and fellow, uh, fellow runners as he passed. This is just like it's insane, right? It's like literally a movie of Keystone Cop style like right, comedy, right? right? Hicks, one of the early American favorites, came under the care of two uh, of a two-man support crew at the 10-mile mark. He begged them for a drink, but they refused, instead sponging out his mouth with warm, distilled water. Whoa. Seven miles from the finish, his handlers fed him a concoction of strychnine and oh. egg whites, the first recorded instance of drug use in the modern Olympics. Strychnine in Doesn't small... strychnine kill you? In small doses. Well, yes, it was rat poison back then. Yeah. Uh, strychnine in small doses was commonly used as a stimulant, and at the time, uh, there were no rules about the performance-enhancing drugs. Right. Hicks's team also carried a flask of French brandy, but decided to withhold it until they could gauge the runner's condition. Meanwhile, Lors, recovered from his cramps, emerged from his 11-mile ride in the automobile. <laughs> One of Hicks's handlers saw him and ordered him off the course, but Lors kept running and finished with a time of just under three hours. The crowd roared and began chanting, An American won! Alice Roosevelt, the 20-year-old daughter of President Theodore Roosevelt, placed a wreath upon his head and was just about to lower the gold medal around his neck when one witness reported, quote, Someone called an indignant halt to the proceedings with the charge that Lors was an imposter. The cheers turned to booze. Lors smiled and claimed that he had never intended to accept the honor. He finished only for the sake of, quote, a joke. Oh, geez. Hicks, the strychnine coursing through his blood, had grown ashen and limp. When he heard that Lors had been disqualified, he perked up and forced his legs into a trot. His trainers gave him another dose of strychnine oh. and egg whites, this time with some brandy to wash it down. They fetched warm water and soaked his body and head. After the bathing, he appeared to revive and quicken his pace. Uh, quote, over the last two miles of the road, wrote race official Charles Lucas, Hicks was running mechanically like a well-oiled piece of machinery. His eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his face and skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs while his knees were almost stiff. He began hallucinating, believing that the finish line was still 20 miles away. In the last mile, he begged for something to eat. Then he begged to lie down. He was given more brandy but refused tea. He swallowed two more egg whites. He walked up the first of the last two hills and then jogged down on the incline. Swinging into the stadium, he tried to run but was reduced to a graceless shuffle. <laughs> his trainers carried him over the line, holding him aloft while his feet moved back and forth, and he was declared the winner. It took four doctors and one hour for Hicks to feel well enough to just leave the grounds. He had lost eight pounds during the course of the race and declared, quote, never in my life have I run such a tough course. The terrific hills simply tear a man to pieces. Hicks and Lors would meet again at the Boston Marathon the following year, which Lors won without the aid of anything but his legs. <laughs> Isn't that the craziest thing you've ever like? Can you imagine if that had happened nowadays, televised, and we just witnessed all this crazy chaos, one thing after another, like all this crazy stuff going on? That's insane. The first time we hold it, we hold it with the World's <laughs> Fair, and it just goes to. And what's with them using like the savages thing? What was 
I mean, I know what it was. It's, it's 1904, the turn the, yeah. Turn of the century, right? That was the idea, but good Lord, right? But I'm guessing when we went to other Olympics, like in Europe, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope not. That was just the U.S. being idiots. How bizarre, right? Very bizarre. The first marathon held for the Olympics on U.S. soil has so this I'm dude assume- jumping in a car pretending to win it okay the daughter of the president's about to give him the medal the dude stealing the peaches and then falling asleep in the orchard because he had we don't see him cramps. again yeah <laughs> he might still be in the orchard and this guy's being fed poison and guys are carrying him across the line and they what? declare him the winner even though he's carried across what so I'm assuming, based on the story, that they didn't have the qualifications that they do now for the Olympics. Yeah, there was probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. You the, just kind of picked the best athletes yeah, or something. I don't know. Or just random people that were there yeah. for the fair Whoever already. Shot, Come on. What was it? Ten Greeks? Is that what it said? Ten, yeah, Greeks? ten Greeks? Out of nowhere? A couple okay, South sure. Africans with no shoes. The Greeks came because they're like, yo, if you guys are going to make this like the old school days, we're here to do this. We've never run before, but put us in. And then they were saying they're running without shoes, and there's parts where there's like all these stones and rocks across. Oh my god! No thanks. That's insane. There you go. That's bizarre. America's first Olympics, our first marathon. It turns <laughs> out to be the most bizarre marathon in Olympic history. It fits when I think of America. <laughs> like it totally, totally fits. So there you go. <laughs> what do you got for me tonight? Okay, so. You know that I'm fascinated with missing person cases oh, and yeah. disappearances. Oh, yeah. So much so that... <gasps> not saying it. So this is a disappearance and then it just goes off the rails. So let's get into this. All right. All right. So this is a story of a kid named Nicholas Barclay. He was a blonde hair, blue-eyed, 13-year-old boy from San Antonio, Texas. He had two half-siblings who were quite a bit older than him, and he lived at home with a single mom. By all accounts, Nicky, as he was known, was a troubled kid. He had a history of physical and verbal abuse towards his mother. The police had been called multiple times to his house after neighbors heard screaming coming from the house. Nicky often skipped school. He already had a juvenile record for stealing and breaking into a store and threatening teachers. So frustrated by her son's behavior that Nicky's mother asked her older son, Jason, to move back in to help with Nicky's care. So... On or around June 13th, 1994, Nicky was playing basketball in his neighborhood with his friends. He called home for a ride. His brother Jason answered and informed Nicky that his mother, who worked the graveyard shift, was asleep and Jason didn't want to wake her. He told Nicky to walk home. But Nicky never made it home. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. So at first, no one was very concerned, right? Because Nikki's this troubled kid. He has a history of taking off. Right. He also had a court hearing the next day to determine if he could uh, stay at home or be sent to like a group home for juveniles. There you go. So I don't think authorities took this very seriously at the beginning at they all. They thought he was avoiding that. Yeah. He didn't want to have to, because he was probably going to end up in the group home. Yes, he wasn't. Let's be he did not want to go, apparently. Yeah. So. I don't even think the mom was very concerned at first, but Nikki had never been gone more than a day. So the mom, you know, was like, hey, start looking. And they didn't think that he had more than $5 in his pocket. I don't know how anybody would have known that, but but all his personal possessions were also at home. So Wait, the, What year was this? I'm sorry. 1994. Well, you could say how much money's in their pocket. Uh, but how would like the mom know? Yeah, like, who knows? He could have been doing beating up kids for money. Or, <laughs> who, who knows what the hell this kid was That's doing? That's true. That's true. But they well, she, assume, knew what, she knew what he she had given him for, like, lunch or some shit. They assume like, he, had he had $5. five okay. And no personal possessions. So they didn't think that he had, The mother did not think that he would have gone on his own. 
And the police then, when they started to get involved, they believed he'd be very easy to find. He had very bright clothes, like purple pants and a pink backpack on. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? No money. And apparently he was always in trouble. So they thought, well, we'll find him quick. This isn't a big deal. But it became clear pretty quickly that Nikki was further than anyone had initially thought. What? So they didn't see him at all. This was in June. Next thing that even happened related to this case was in September. Joe, hold on. In July, August. Okay, so during this time, they're still doing like little searches or it just kind of dies off after the first few weeks, right? I think right? it probably died off, Because yeah. it's a small town? San Antonio, Texas. Oh, no, that's big, dude. Yeah, what? yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I okay. mean, he's just a runaway, they assume. Okay. So there was no trailer sighting until September. This is when Jason, the older brother, called the police reporting that he see, he thinks Nikki, he could see Nikki attempting to break into the garage. So he saw him? Apparently. Okay. Police come. They see no signs of forced entry. They see no signs of Nikki in the neighborhood. Things I read, they doubted Jason's story. It didn't really make sense because they think they would have, they got there real quick. They think they would have seen something. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm making note right here because I'm going to come back to this. Well, yes. That's why I bring it up. It might come into play later. (laughs) So the case is cold, right? Nothing happens. And then it's fast forward, October 1997. So this is three years later. San Antonio police receive a phone call from Spain. A Spanish youth worker in Linares, Spain, stated that Nicholas Barclay was in their care, alive and physically unhurt. What? Nikki's older sister, Carrie, immediately flies to Spain to identify him. (laughs) Nikki reported that he was abducted from Texas three years ago and taken to Europe immediately. He said he was in a child sex ring, which was apparently run by high-powered military officials, but he managed to escape. When Carrie and Nikki were first reunited, Nikki had on sunglasses and a baseball hat. But even so, Carrie immediately recognized her brother. Oh, man. For over an hour, Carrie and Nikki went through old family photos. Nikki had little memory of his life in Texas, and Carrie was hoping that by showing him some photos, it might jar his memory and bring him back. And after a while, he seemed to be getting it back. He even asked Carrie at one point, is Grandpa still an asshole? Oh, God. Well, isn't everybody's grandpa an asshole? Well, most of the time. Not always, but okay. Yeah. So before... Good guess. <laughs> yeah. Before releasing Nikki back to the States, the police had him review a different batch of photos, I guess, of different people to identify of his family. He only made one mistake, so he was sent home. He was sent home with Carrie. It was his mom. They're like, <laughs> no, that's not your mom. That's Marge Simpson. It's literally a cartoon. <laughs> Just kidding. His, this is crazy, but I have a feeling this is not ugh, This is not going to be good, man. His immediate family recognized and accepted him as Nikki, even oh, though God. there were some differences. For example, he had dark hair and dark eyes. He was a blonde haired blue eyed boy, remember? Okay, wait a second. Wait a <laughs> second. Wait a second. This is where you stop the phone. This nope. is where we stop it. We're not stopping wait, it Also, yet. I feel like, didn't we do a story like this? This is crazy. He spoke with a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> These people are desperate. 13-year-old oh, Nikki had been loud and quick-tempered. This guy's 45. 16-year-old Nikki was very quiet and reserved. Uh, well, you could change, dude. Over three years, things could have happened to he you. Sta- I get that. He stated that his eye color had been chemically changed by his abductor, so he wouldn't be recognized. What? You can't do that. And that he was forced to speak French. Is that possible? Hold it. Can you chemically change somebody's eye color? Is that a possible thing? I don't think so. <laughs> but no one was really sure. They thought maybe that existed. This is and back no one in the knew. 90s, This is before right? Google. So. This is 90, yeah. This yeah. is in the 90s. So they're like, 
whoa, you might be right. <laughs> this It's the only thing that makes sense. And it was assumed that he was quiet because of his trauma. So because this was such a seemingly oh, feel-good story, right? A happy ending, child abduction case. It ends up happy. Yeah. Reporters were obviously very interested. Mm-hmm. An investigator working with hard copy. Oh, hard copy. Hard copy actually has... <laughs> Had some real investigators, I guess. Wow. <laughs> he began to be suspicious that this boy was not really Nikki. Yeah, I guess. But he, the thing that there really has, the there, thing that really put him over was the ears. There ha- okay, that's a weird thing to say, but I was gonna say <laughs> there has to be at least one family member that brought that shit up, right? Like they all were at the fa- the, the, the the welcome thing, and then the cousins were leaving. And they're in the car and they're like, you know, that's not Nikki, right? They're like, yeah, but how do we tell them? Oh, we're not telling them. Are you kidding me? I'm not the one going to say it. This investigator, <laughs> we'll get to all that. Not- oh, God. Notice that the ears on the boy compared to Nikki were different. Like didn't line up the same on the well, face. It's because it was chemically changed. <laughs> or he's going to say like surgically changed, like some sort of like uh, plastic surgery or he some shit. He didn't say anything. In February 1998, FBI obtained a court order to fingerprint him and obtained <gasps> DNA. Boom. And this was not Nikki. Boom. Well, obviously. This was not even a boy. What the fuck? Tell me it's the midget lady or the dwarf lady, please. This is like if you read the book Gone Girl, where you read the whole first part, and then all of a sudden, boom, everything changes, and you're in the second part. This is the second act now. Please tell me this is the dwarf lady from the Ukraine, (laughs) because that's going to make this so much better. It's not. Okay. But But what are you talking about? This is insane. Meet Frederick Bourdain. Bourdain? A 23-year-old French citizen dwarf who had a history of creating false identities. <gasps> he had been, <laughs> You're so shocked over there. He had been on the run since the age of 16. That was when he invented his first fake character. He pretended to be a lost British teen because he wanted to see England. His ruse was quickly identified when he couldn't speak much English. But Bourdain learned from that and got better and better. In 1994, when his latest identity was about to be found out at the youth home where he was staying, he decided he's going to take a real identity this time. Because in the past, he'd always just created a made-up one. Okay. He also wanted to see America. So listen to this. Listen to what he did. This is so resourceful. Sneaking into an office in the middle of the night, he called the Center for Exploited and Missing Children in America. He told the operator that he had a teenager claiming to be American. He said he ran a youth shelter or something. He described his own appearance, saying that that's what this kid looked like, and asked if they had anybody on their list who would match. And she said Nicholas Barclay, because they both were like the same kind of built. They both had a gap in between their teeth and darker hair. I think he had Get out. Bourdain had her fax the information to him in the office he was at in the middle of the night. So he could act like, let me me just see if I could identify him. When he saw the picture, he thought, oh, I can make this work. So he said, and then he called her back and said, yep, I have Nicholas Barclay here. At the shelter. And then she said, call San Antonio police. And that's how it all started. Wow. What happened when they found out? Well, even Bourdain himself was very surprised that the ruse worked and that Nikki's family so readily adopted him. So since then... (coughs) We talked about this before. I think we've... I feel like there was a story where something came like that where... I don't know if maybe Johnny brought it up or you brought it up. We, we had some sort of story recently where somebody had been missing and they took this kid in. Bobby thinking, Dunbar. We yes. saw it on, uh, on oh, BuzzFeed Unsolved. Yeah. That was a show. So, yeah. But that's the thing. Like, people, when they're when they're at a point, you, like, they lost their child. Like, think about how scary and, like, you know, gone he is. Yeah, he might have been a troublemaker, but, like, 
Like it's still it's 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 devastating. So when it comes back, you just want to grasp at straws. So, so there's and so you're ready to accept the craziest story you could ever hear because it's your your kids back. That and is life one, is back to being normal. That is one theory. Bordine himself believes that Nikki's brother Jason and his mother had something to do with his disappearance, <gasps> and that's why they were taking this kid in as their own because then there would never be a murder investigation. What the fuck? This even even this was another turn now. What? Yeah. So, but you know, there's some holes in that theory as well. But that's what Frederick believes. Frederick Bourdine believes that they did something. Why to he their said kids. this? He came out saying, yeah, this? yeah. He said it was weird. Like, and he feels like like the extended families would say stuff to him. And even after the DNA test came back, I guess the family still didn't want to accept that it wasn't Nikki. So that could be trauma, but it could also be something more sinister. Wow. And there's a lot more into that theory you could dive into if you wanted to. Like about Jason and that sighting, which they don't think was real. Oh, and then I didn't even... Oh, what I was going to say going back to that was maybe it was real and I thought maybe the kid was dead and he saw a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Jason then uh, had an overdose and died very shortly around this. Really? Whether that was intentional or not, people don't know, but some people... Some people say that, you know, he was wracked by guilt and killed himself. Wow. So, yeah, it's interesting. Dude, that's insane. But Bourdain was sentenced to six years in prison for his stunt. It gets crazier. Don't worry. Oh, okay. I thought we were done. All right. <laughs> he was sentenced to six years in prison for his stunt, a significant amount of time longer than the sentencing guidelines because the judge was like, you're an asshole. Like, yeah. This is horrible what you did. But, you know, when he gets out, he returns to impersonations again. In 2003, he pretended to be a 14-year-old. Oh, my God. In 2004, he took on another identity. In 2005, he was placed at a youth shelter as a 15-year-old named Francisco Hernandez Fernandez. Despite despite being in his 30s at the time and having a receding hairline, he was attending school, going ice skating, and playing video games with his peers. And there's actually an article in The New Yorker more about this time when he took this identity. Because it's pretty fascinating how he was able to do this at like age 30. And his ruse was only discovered when a school administrator saw a TV show about the world's most famous imposters and recognized him. The authorities arrived and took off his baseball hat. He said he always wore a baseball hat because he had scars on his head from his earlier abuse or something. And then they see the receding hairline. And his peers and teachers were shocked. But because he was not impersonating an actual person, there really wasn't much to charge him with. They just fined him for forging documents. In 2007, he married a fan. Someone, oh, good lord! Someone who saw him on a special because I guess he comes across as very like just charming and earnest. And all he says he wants, he's not doing this for money. All he wants is to have a home and someone to love him. <laughs> so he married this woman. He now has five children. Although his marriage fell apart in 2017, it appears that Bourdain's life of impersonating is over, Accord- at least for now. According to the da- Daily Mirror, Bourdain claimed that he would never impersonate anyone again. In 2008, Bourdain was interviewed by David Grant from The New Yorker after his wife gave birth to their first child. Grant asked if Bourdain had become a new person now that he was father and a husband, to which he replied, no, this is who I am. Dun, dun, dun! This dude is a Spider-Man villain. Do you know he has a nickname? Yeah, the chameleon. The chameleon. Yes. The, the guy literally has a nickname that he's known by people like this. He's got a Wikipedia, a Wikipedia page. Of course, it's huge. I just looked it up. I was like, whole, I got to see what this guy looks like. How is he passing himself off as kids? I mean, back in the day, he may have. But what? 
Yeah. And apparently there's a um a documentary about him on Netflix called The Imposter and the, I did not watch it but The Chameleon. And he, there's a French again. movie about it's a fictional yeah, yeah, yeah. called The Chameleon. And I saw another thing that Law and Order had an episode yeah, yeah. that that uh kind of referenced him or or had kind of a so, storyline that went that way. So he's out there in pop culture but I didn't know all the details of the story. I knew there was someone who did this but I didn't Dude, know. Dude, I had never heard of that before. That's crazy cool. That's pretty bizarre. How bizarre. Yeah. Awesome. Well, there you go, Creepers. Another episode of How Bizarre in the Can for you. The Chameleon Strikes Again. <laughs> I think it's the name of the episode. I like that one. I want um, him to come back. Like, you know, start impersonating again. <laughs> Bring it back. You've had a hiatus else, right? now. Now he's got to start impersonating like older people. Yeah, right? he can't do teen Steal boys anymore. Identities. He likes the teen orphan boys, but let's try. Yeah. That sounds bad. Let's can't, try something else. Can't do that. <laughs> anyway. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. That was another episode of How Bizarre. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have not, head over to Facebook and make sure you follow our History Creeps page. That's where we post our episodes. And uh, if you'd like, you can comment underneath. Uh, maybe we'll respond. Maybe we won't. And maybe in the future, we'll have a creeper on this episode. How bizarre. So anyway, listen. Thanks so much for listening. For Chris Chavez and my wife, Erin Chavez. Uh, peace out. We're, we're peacing out. <laughs> and uh, we also want to let you know that That's when the right. world throws it at your way and says, you know, that's super bizarre, you say. How bizarre? <laughs> <laughs>